Welcome to Labyrinth, the official podcast of the Friedrich Nietzsche Society, where we discuss recent work on Nietzsche with Nietzsche scholars. I'm Dr. Vanessa Urkel, and in this episode, we talk to Dr. Philip Mills about his book, A Poetic Philosophy of Language, Nietzsche and Wittgenstein's Expressivism. Members of the Friedrich Nietzsche Society can enjoy the full one-hour episode on our website. Please visit www.fns.org.uk for more details. We'll now go to the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Today I'm joined by Philip Mills. Philip Mills is a postdoctoral fellow in French literature at the University of Lausanne. His first book, A Poetic Philosophy of Language, Nietzsche and Wittgenstein's Expressivism, published with Bloomsbury in 2022, elaborates a philosophy of language that can account for poetic phenomena. His current research explores how to approach poetry from within the framework of ordinary language philosophy and analyzes ordinary practices at play in contemporary French poetry. So thank you so much for joining me today, Philip. Thank you for inviting me. All right, and thank you for writing this book because I have learned so much. This is um, really amazing and it's beautifully written, so clear on concepts which are actually very difficult usually for me to grasp. So as soon as I saw the word analytic philosophy, I freaked out a little bit because I consider myself to be a continental philosopher. So very nice to see that perhaps there is hope and we can bridge the divide. Um, so could you situate the major puzzle or problem which your book tackles? You talk about the prob- the quarrel between philosophy and poetry and also the analytic and continental divide. What's the problem that your book kind of tackles? Yeah, so I think it, it all originates in my, well, ambition to um, elaborate a philosophy of poetry. And I've noticed that in analytic aesthetics, usually you have philosophy of, and you can put whichever word after that, and you can find some definitions or some ways of um, defining what this topic is. So, poetry, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and so, in, di- in doing so, it it misses an, another part that seems to be central to continental philosophy is the other side of the of how poetry affects philosophy back. And so in this philosophy of poetry, you have the opposition between philosophy and poetry. That's an ancient quell. Plato already says it like, you know, it's an ancient quell and so on. He banishes poets from, from his city. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that in Plato if we look closely at the at the works themselves, but in like a common picture of Plato is Plato is rejecting poets. And I feel like it's kind of the same move going on within, within analytic philosophy, rejecting poetry, um, especially in philosophy of language where poetry is left aside, like it's not important. Mm-hmm. Um, and continental philosophy is doing kind of the opposite, saying, Oh, poetry is all there is in language. That's the only important thing. But in the end, that's not true either, because when we're talking like this, we're not really doing poetry. And so something else is going on. And so the the ambition was to find a middle ground between those two views. So between philosophy and poetry, between analytic and continental. 
and uh, I hope I've managed somehow. I mean, it's it's a complicated position to be in, to be in between. I always feel yeah. like too analytic for continental philosophers and too continental for <laughs> analytic philosophers, but yeah, it's very ambitious. And I thought, oh, wow. Um, but I, I do think you pull it off. And I was really impressed by your argument. So I kind of want to break it down and go through um, how you how you sort of do this. So first of all, what's the problem um, that Nietzsche and Wittgenstein see? Because you bring them together as well, which is really cool. Not two philosophers I often see together. So that was fun. Um, but we'll bring them together. And what's their position on the sort of traditional philosophy of language? Yeah, so so the idea was to take Nietzsche and Wittgenstein as representing so Nietzsche for the continental side and Wittgenstein for the analytic side, even though Wittgenstein has a more complicated position. I mean, is not a I mean, he wouldn't be some analytic philosophers now would say oh, the second Wittgenstein is not really an analytic yeah. philosophy. So it's kind of complicated. It's kind of easier to to bridge this way than taking more extreme forms of analytic philosophies. But I think they both, so that's that's the, the main argument of the book regarding philosophy of languages. They both see uh, that what has, what I call representationalism, what has been called representationalism. So the idea that language represents the world and that meaning is a matter of reference and truth, a matter of correspondence. So this kind of conceptual framework um, does not account for all the uses of language and does not give a faithful picture of what language does. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they both kind of fight against death. And this fight is related to their criticism of metaphysics, because metaphysics is based on the presuppositions that language mirrors the world, that there's the world, some, something like a true world, as Nietzsche would put it, and that we have representations of, of it, and that language is one way of getting to the true world. Um, whereas Wittgenstein and Nietzsche argue uh, I think in a more pragmatic way, language is something we use to do things. Uh, I mean, maybe it's pushing Nietzsche in a too pragmatic direction uh, saying so, but that's the idea I had. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I love that idea of the bringing them together to demonstrate how the value of language is actually and how it's used. Um, and I did feel, yeah, that is very Nietzschean. And I didn't see before how many similarities Wittgenstein and Nietzsche had. That was really cool. Um, you then come to talk about a sort of alternative view that Nietzsche and Wittgenstein try to propose. Um, but it kind of is bridged between these two different types of expressivism. Um, so before we get into them, their view, I just want to talk about the two types of expressivism. First, romantic um, expressivism, I think, is the first one you discuss. What's that? Yeah, so so um, the way I, I framed it is there is an alternative to representationalism, and there has been throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, and especially the work of Charles Taylor has shown that uh, in 18th century German philosophy of language and then pursuing in the 19th century and the 20th, uh, there's a tradition that doesn't take 
languages representing the world, but rather as a form of expression. Um, and I think that's kind of epitomizing the romantic ideal of, uh, and that's why I call it romantic expressivism, the romantic, romantic ideal that um, poetry, art are ways of disclosing truth about the world that are not truth as correspondence, but something different. Mm -hmm. um, and so language is not no longer a matter of representing or referring to the world, but it's a matter of expressing something that's somehow hidden uh, in the, in behind a veil of um, appearances. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Nietzsche inherits from, well, Nietzsche obviously inherits from this tradition because he inherits from the romantics and so on. Um, but I think he goes a step further in, in avoiding this idea that there's something hidden behind uh, something. And so that's romantic expressivism would, would be the idea that language shapes the world in a sense. Um, and in this shaping manages to reveal something that is hidden. Mm. And it's the metaphor of the, of the lamp. So that's the famous book by Abrams, um, The Mirror and the Lamp which is a book on romanticism. And so that the romantics move from the idea that language is a mirror to language is a lamp that comes and enlightens some aspects of reality that are usually left in the shadows. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is one of the sections I learned so much about because you cover so many philosophers and it's just so rich and beautiful. It's really well written. Um, so is this, romantic expressivism then too metaphysical for Nietzsche and Wittgenstein in the end? I mean, that's what well, that's what I argue. Um, I think Nietzsche goes a step further and maybe Heidegger comes back. So in a mm -hmm. sense that um, I, I'm not really keen on Heidegger's reading of, of <laughs> Nietzsche. Uh, I mean, I, I don't yeah. know if many people are anyway, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like Heidegger is going somehow a step backwards uh, from, from Nietzsche. Yeah going to back towards romantic, a uh, form of romantic expressivism. But I would say yeah, Nietzsche would, would be in this, I, I would follow the idea that, oh, even romantic expressivism is still saying there's something hidden that needs to be mm. disclosed. And this something hidden is still participating in the metaphysical uh, framework of a true world hidden behind the appearances. Whereas, as, as, as you know, he famously says, well, when we, once we get rid of the true world, we get rid of the world of appearances too, so yeah. we don't have this dichotomy anymore. And so that's one way Nietzsche would say romantic expressivism does not go far enough. Mm. Uh, I think Wittgenstein would, would say something like that too, but um, he does not really engage with the history of philosophy. He's famous for not quoting too many philosophers. <laughs> Uh, um, and and so I I feel like he's more taking a different direction with this idea of pragmatic expressivism that he mm. opens. Um, and so in a sense Nietzsche would be kind of the the end of romantic expressivism, and Wittgenstein would be the beginning of pragmatic expressivism. Yeah. And that I argue that somewhere in between them, well, connecting mm -hmm. to something um, interesting going on. I love that. So for pragmatic expressivism, how would you describe that? Because that's the 
yeah, sort of the other type of expressivism that you're going to find Nietzsche falls in between. Yeah, so so the idea was to um, have Wittgenstein as kind of the first, well, not the first, but representing the beginning of this pragmatic expressivism that's then developed in contemporary works in analytic philosophy, which went Robert Brandom, uh, Hugh Price, and Simon Blackburn. So the, uh, I really wanted to have this kind of going from um, the history of German um, philosophy of language towards contemporary um, philosophy. Um, and pragmatic expressivism was one way of kind of uh, having this contemporary part, um, which is interesting because that's just kind of a digression, but uh, this book is uh, a revision of my PhD thesis. And in my PhD thesis, the chapter on pragmatic expressivism didn't exist. So it's kind oh. of been, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of been added. I mean, I remember my my supervisor told me, oh, you should go and read some Brandom. And I was like, OK, I'm going to read some Brandom. <laughs> and I was reading Brandom and I was like, why? Why am I reading that? And then <laughs> at some point, so I finished my PhD. There was no Brandom in it or not not much. And then when I decided to work, to revise it to make a book out of it, I, I I read some Brandom again, and I said, "Oh, now I know why I need Brandom in my book." Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> to be this kind of counterpart to uh, uh, romantic expressivism, and so pragmatic expressivism in this way is saying, "Okay, uh, uh, Brandom would put it is a relation between vo vocabularies and practice." And, mm -hmm. uh, so Vocabularies would be kind of the semantic program, traditional with reference and so on, that words are, have meanings that refer to things. And practice would be kind of the pragmatic way of seeing that words are used in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And he shows that there's there are relations that the, the vocabularies kind of originate in the practices and practices are kind of shaped by the vocabularies. So it makes kind of a... Um, it shows the ways they interact. So saying, okay, it's not all um, a matter of reference, but it's not all a matter of, of practice too. Uh, and so I think uh, Wittgenstein opens this way to saying practices are central to our understanding of language. And then Brandom and, and other express, contemporary expressivists, they, they move um, towards a kind of combining this Wittgensteinian view with a more traditional conception of language. Mm -hmm. um, and so if if that would be where I criticize this pragmatic expressivism is saying, OK, um, by they give a central place to certain uses of language. And so they replay the whole history of of philosophy of language that rejects some uses of language but accepts some others. So they would be going too far into having um, one kind of language game, the one of giving reasons to be the central one. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think Wittgenstein does not make this claim and say, and is more saying like all practices, all uses of language are kind of equal. We just use them in certain situations, and depending on the situation, we use this or that um, practice. And and so, yeah, that's pragmatic expressivism would be the idea that 
uh, language is shaped by the way we use it. Mm -hmm. But then contemporary uh, expressivists would say, especially by the way we give reasons. <laughs> so that's where, where I would disagree. I would agree with the first part saying, okay, language yeah. is shaped by the way we use it uh, and what we do with it, but without giving a center uh, or downtown to use the uh, uh, architectural or urbanistic vocabulary they, they use. So Yeah, so in a way that one's not poetic enough as you kind of demonstrate. <laughs> I'm delighted to know that that wasn't in the original thesis. Like, that's amazing because it was such a, I really love this part of the argument because it it just added this beautiful, I, I think I have an obsession with the number three. And as soon as you've got, you know, thesis, antithesis, and a third that kind of comes, I just get very excited. So I think that's lovely how you set it up that romantic expressivism um, is still is good but it's still a little bit too metaphysical for Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and then pragmatic expressivism also has its sort of benefits but it might throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and it's bye-bye to poetics or poetry so that opens it up for the gorgeous next chapter where you demonstrate this middle ground that you see Nietzsche and Wittgenstein um, bringing in a sort of balance, balanced position between the two, which you call uh, poetic expressivism. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about the thesis and the thesis synthesis oh. thing. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't really consider pragmatic and romantic expressivism to be posed in the sense of, of this thesis and this thesis, but it's an interesting way. Maybe we can't get out of this way of thinking. <laughs> Some point we've been contaminated by Hegel. I, I need a new <laughs> perspective, you see, that's all. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, the idea um, is, so that's chapter four, I think, uh, that's mm -hmm. on Nietzsche and, and, and Wittgenstein. So this one was kind of, the argument was already there in the in the PhD thesis, but without the, the term expressivism. So, um, but the idea is to connect to say, okay, so if uh, romantic expressivism is too metaphysical, and if pragmatic expressivism is uh, too rational in a sense, that would be kind of the the, the word. Then we need to go one step backwards from uh, pragmatic expressivism and one step forward from uh, romantic expressivism and this middle, well, this place where we land when we did take one step backward and one step forward is somewhere in the intersection between Nietzsche and Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I argue is that they both reject representationalism, so the idea that, that language mirrors the world, uh, and they come up with an alternative conception of language uh, in which poetry um, but poetry not in this necessarily in the sense of the art form, but poetry in the sense of the the, um, the Greek poiesis, sort of making. So we're making is central in um, in our uses of language. So um, what we do with language, uh, what we build with language is what, what is central. Um, and that would be a form of poetic expressivism in the sense that it shapes um, so we make things with language and by doing so we shape the world uh, mm. um, that, that we, well, the reality we deal with. 
So we don't need a reality that is uh, external to our users of language, but where do we find reality back in our users of language and in what we make with language? 